Dominic is being fed cheese and grapes and drinking fine Italian wine on the Italian countryside, and Lilac is enjoying the great New England weather. But that's okay because we have a special guest today, Mr. David Sheridan. Let's kick it off. Uh, David, thank you for joining the show. Happy to be here. Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, VMR is taking off, and a lot of people didn't believe in it when it was first, uh, you know, when it first started. And now here we are with cloud. Did VMware miss an opportunity to be the platform across all clouds, or does VMware still have a place in this in this cloud world, if you will? Well, I think uh, you know the. I think VMware clearly has still has an important place. Uh, I always go back to the history. You know, when I made the early investment in VMware, it was portrayed as kind of a development tool where you could dual boot both Windows and Linux, and so people developing applications for both. But the way VMware really took off was, as I understand the story, uh, IBM came out with a multiprocessor um, box, and nobody wanted to buy it because you couldn't, the practice that people developed was you run one instance of Windows for each application because Windows <laughs> didn't have the greatest reputation as an operating system in the way we defined it 40 years ago. And so nobody wanted to run a multiprocessor Windows with a bunch of applications running on the same thing. So VMware came to the rescue and allowed you to take this multiprocessor and shop it up into a bunch of separate hosts so you could run multiple instances, the Windows operating system, where it's really a Windows runtime system, I think, and and VMware was providing the isolation between these different uh, applications that seem to be required. Now, I think that that's where it, it really took off in the enterprise was that, and uh, um, the rest is history. Now, I think it's kind of an interesting transition to, to get to the cloud because um, to me, the, the cloud grew out of um, some ways, I like to attribute the cloud to Google because many people don't realize how expensive it, it is and it was to run a search engine like Google. In fact, you know, I, I suspect that if they'd gone directly to VCs, they would have been turned down because it's just infeasible to run a search engine of any scale with that cost. And one of the geniuses of Larry and Sergey was they they used just stripped down basic, no name kind of <laughs> servers to build up this huge capacity at a fraction of the cost that most enterprises were doing at the time. So I think that very cost sensitive approach was was what succeeded uh, with Google or made it possible. And Jeff Bezos picked up the same theme in building out his empire. And, and I think then the cloud computing arose out of the realization that this was a useful service to provide in this form of, of ultra cheap, you know, kind of cookie cutter type servers that are replicated. So it's, uh, you know, it's quite a different, uh, evolution from the way VMware evolved, where it was cutting costs in the enterprise as opposed to figuring out how do you scale up a search engine, in effect, or an e-commerce site. So I think that, to me, the maybe it missed the opportunity, but really be hard to 
see how you would stitch those together early on. It sometimes feels like, um, you know, the cloud is just one big VMware kind of instance out there. Um, but the other thing is like going back to your like IBM analogy, like IBM wanted to, I mean, it's just taking, it feels like the old mainframe kind of analogies and putting it to a windows core. Um, and what's interesting, what you said about cloud is they seem to be, it seemed to be born out of necessity of, let's say Google or Amazon's extra capacity or, um, kind of thinking of how they scale their own issues um, is, but everybody's taking or trying to take advantage of that now is, is cloud growth going to continue or are we going to go backwards now? Because I mean, VMware is still there. Like, how do the two transcend each other now where we are? How, how do you see that, David? Well, uh, <clears throat> you know, to me, uh, the, the key element in cloud is, you know, a trend that we've seen in computing very broadly where you start out with a diversity of approaches. So, you know, we saw in the early days of computing, there was a diversity of computer architectures. We've not exactly converged to about two, ARM and, and x86. And, um, not always the best technology wins, uh, you know, witness English as a language, for instance, <laughs> but you know, often sort of converging on a good enough solution uh, is what the name of the game. We saw the same thing in networking where you have, you know, all these different type of network technologies and almost everything is Ethernet at this point. And same thing, you know, that we've converged the network architecture, almost everything is IP-based, TCP, and so on. So to me, with cloud, the key element is, again, this convergence, the way you build a lot of computing capacity is a bunch of the same things all connected together in a very routine kind of way. Now, as Zach knows, I've had great difficulty with the Jeff Bezos term public cloud because... <laughs> You know, Jeff Bezos' public cloud is as public as Disneyland is because, you know, it's like Disneyland is a public park because you can pay to get in there. You know, uh, Jeff Bezos' public cloud is basically just as public. You pay and you get in the door and, and Jeff Bezos makes a lot of money just like Disney makes a lot of money showing up in their park, their public park. But I think that, uh, to me, the big uh, direction in my mind is not, is cloud going or coming? It's the recognition that there's public, there's the, the uh, uh, service provider cloud as really what I'd like to call it. And then there's the private cloud. And one of the things that uh, inspired uh, this startup Abstra that was bought by Juniper was the view that the thing that separated Jeff Bezos from an ordinary enterprise was the automation that allowed you to run a private cloud with the same efficiency as you can, as AWS can run. Because when you look at the capital costs, they're not that different. It's the operating costs. It's the economies of scale, but the economies of scale go away if you can automate the operations of the network and the servers. So to me, we're, we're very rapidly becoming uh, developing products in the space of automating the ability to run a cloud 
so that you can just subscribe or buy the software or write it yourself, run it on-prem, and then you can run your own uh, private cloud with essentially the same architecture. I mean, it's the same, a bunch of servers all connected by Ethernet. You know, there's no magic in there. Um, run the same software. And so you can have private cloud and public cloud. And so to me, what I see is more and more enterprises think, well, let's achieve a balance here. We'll run some in our private cloud and some of our applications in the public cloud. And the analogy I've used many times is between, you know, having a, your own private residence versus a hotel. You know, if somebody said, well, hotels are going away because I'm buying a house. Well, <laughs> you'd say, well, when I visit this other city, you know, or relatives come to visit, I need extra space. I use the hotel. So it's not going away. It's just that I'm not living in a hotel 24 by 7. And so I think what we see is, is just a return to this balance that you, uh, you have on-prem private cloud and you have off-prem for surge capacity, sometimes for geographical reach, for experimental sorts of things or for specialized services. So certainly I've heard people say, well, I like to use Google Cloud because I think they have the best AI capabilities there and I don't want to try and pull all of the that AI infrastructure onto my on-prem cloud because I'm just not using it that much. So I think that we're what we're doing is we've been hyped into <laughs> believing public cloud is the future, but I don't think it's going away. I think what we're doing is is coming back to a sensible balance. Yeah, and and you know, coming from the enterprise side, I would say that you know when you talk about the cost picture, it comes down to like people, maturity of organization, your processes. And there is a sense that moving to a cloud provider removes that ability because doing it inside would require more people, more process maturity. So that that balance is really hard for, I think, certain companies, depending on what industry you're in, to find. Um, leading into a, a bit of AI, right? So, I mean, there's a lot of hype around kind of AI and everything that's happening and, and everybody kind of is building software is um, is starting to put kind of AI lingo to it. C can you give us your thoughts on AI? Because sometimes I see what companies are are producing and I think to myself, like, mm, I, I don't I don't know, you know, if that's really kind of AI or if it's just, you know, a feature that that we can build, you know. So, you know, I, I struggle with myself. Just just like to get your thoughts on it. Well, I have a curious perspective on AI because I spent, uh, why was it, 38 or 39 years at Stanford <laughs> next to, you know, sharing office space and effectively with people who called themselves AI researchers. And it's a, it's a very broad umbrella. And so, um, you know, to me, it's it's not completely useful category in talking about actual techniques, engineering techniques and in problem solving. Like, you know, many people will say AI and what they mean is machine learning. Well, machine learning is kind of a fancy form of statistical regression. And so you'd say, well, once you get down to that level, you say, well, do we, is this a problem that's amenable to a statistical technique? And 
you know, statistical technique generally means that if you're right a lot of the time and you have enough data to build up the statistics, then maybe it's appropriate. But um, so certainly, you know, I think one of the revolutions we're, we're being influenced by is, is, again, if I can point at Google, you say, well, you want to be able to search for pictures of cats and if you have to just look at all the images, millions of images uh, that Google has and figure out which ones are cats, it's pretty painful. It, they have this huge repository so they can train some statistical regression mechanism to, to recognize cats with a reasonable degree of accuracy, say 80 or 90%. So when you search for cats and you're given a collection of 100 pictures of cats, if 10 of those are wolves and gorillas and so on, you still say, well, that's heck of a lot better than searching millions of pictures trying to find cats because I've got 90 pictures of cats to choose from. However, if you apply it to something which is more life critical, you say, you know, like self-driving where you say, well, I make, you know, every 100 trips, 10 of those something bad happens when I'm driving, I don't think that's acceptable. So to me, there's there's a question of digging below the marketing and say, well, what do you actually mean? You know, what is the engineering technique really being applied here? So I, I think that um, to me, engineering is about making those sort of trade-offs and, and also... Um, to me, engineering is about providing a level of predictability to a system. So if, you know, it, predictability means that in the Google case of searching for cat images, most of the time, most people are happy. If that's a, a predictable result, you'd say, okay, this is a good solution. But if most of the time grandma makes it home alive is not an acceptable result. You know, you say, well, this technique doesn't apply. So I think we just have to get beyond the marketing to what is the actual problem and what is the actual engineering solution that's being proposed. Yeah, let's, let me just add on to that then. So, you know, speaking about AI, and I, I think I might pivot this a little bit to chips and Intel and, and kind of what we're seeing in the industry, David, with the, a lot of these chip delays and, um, you know, what's going on, uh, I guess, geopolitically and uh, across the world. Um, how do you see that factoring into um, not just AI, I guess, in general? I mean, you know, the what's going on with the chips and uh, and even Intel. I mean, Intel's uh, taken a little bit of a, of a hit the last few years around, uh, you know, they missed an innovation cycle. They're also trying to, you know, you said earlier, it's not just Intel and it's not just x86, it's ARM as well. They're making some changes. I mean, um, how do you think all this plays into even not AI, but just in in the uh, the world of compute and everything? What are your thoughts around that? I guess. Well, Zach, if I can, uh, <clears throat> you kind of poke me on a particular hobby horse of mine, where I think we're we've allowed ourselves to get into an incredibly dangerous situation where we're extremely dependent upon a technology that is incredibly powerful, but is, is also really fragile in many, many ways. You know, uh, 
you know, we've had examples of this where, you know, missing semicolon means a spacecraft <laughs> disappears <laughs> into a planet, you know, and, uh, you know, we've had examples where we've come very close to having a water, public water system compromised by, you know, an intrusion into the system. Um, we really don't have a very good grip on the technology that we've become incredibly dependent on. And, and so I think the supply chain aspect is, is certainly one of these, you know, that you read how our supply chain in chips is so dependent on TSMC, and yet, you know, you can read in the same Wall Street Journal issue, somebody speculating on what would actually stop the China from invading Taiwan. And, you know, this is, I feel like we're, we're just being incredibly blind to, um, to the exposure we've got just from so many different elements here. And, uh, you know, I think, uh, human beings are prone to sort of do management by crises. <laughs> so I guess maybe nothing will change until there is a crisis. But uh, I think, uh, you know, the, the technology that we're dependent upon is, is, is absolutely terrifying right now. And I think we are in a bit of a, a crisis. I think there's a lot of money being pushed into it, but I don't, I, I still don't think it's enough. And I think the, like it, it's the new, um, I, I would almost call it the new arms race, right? Where everybody's trying to get better, um, you know, faster, uh, but we're kind of lacking behind. Do you think you, T, TSMC is, I mean, the leader, right? Everybody goes to them. Do you think the U.S. will ever again have a bit of dominance or be able to challenge? Or is this, is it too late, do you think, David? Well, I have kids, so I never like to say too late. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, in the U.S., uh, you know, I, I like to learn from history. And if you look at the U.S. behavior up to Pearl Harbor, um, you know, it's a lot of stupidity stacked on top of stupidity. But, uh, you know, some people have characterized this as, you know, Pearl Harbor woke the sleeping lion in effect. Um, you know, I think we are largely asleep right now. So, um, and I think that to me, the English speaking world in general, you know, retains a tremendous advantage in computing. Um, you know, there's some really strong people in Canada, in, in, in Britain, and as well as the United States. And, and there's a common belief in, in, uh, the things that make <laughs> this advanced technology possible, um, you know, which I think is is sort of the freedom of speech, freedom of dissent, and letting the best ideas flourish. And, and in some ways, democracy is basically you're voting with your votes, or you're voting with your feet, or you're voting with your uh, with the technology. So Ethernet arose dominant because. People voted for it in some sense, and you know it's that freedom that I think has allowed the best things to flourish. So we have tremendous advantages, but I think you know we're we're somewhat asleep at this stage, and and the focus has been uh, too much on other things. Uh, you know, I think that uh, t 
to me personally, at the risk of getting political here, I think to me the the uh, government role, number one government role, should be defense. And you know, when if you went back and told George Washington, you know, gee, thank you for founding this country, and guess what? You know, 300 years later, there's going to be hospital systems that are paying foreign adversaries to be able to function <laughs> and the federal government is doing nothing, <laughs> the Washington would say, boy, did I, something went wrong along the way. I mean, you know, you could describe all the right things that happened, but something desperately stupid went wrong along the way. And the other story, if I can sneak this in, which is about the internet, which is that um, in... You know, in the early days of the internet, I I didn't know everybody on the internet, but <laughs> I had a directory that had everybody on ARPANET, and that was pretty much everybody on the internet early on. So it was a small researchy community, and uh, I remember in 1988 the surprise when the this first worm broke out. I was at MIT at the time, and. And, uh, you know, this was a wake-up call for researchers because we hadn't really thought about the attack surface of the Internet. In um, about 10 years ago, I had a Ph.D. student that maybe 15, who did this study, this was at Stanford, where he was just looking at traffic coming into the Stanford email server. And what he determined was 94% of the connections to that server were attack attempts probes and so on. So, uh, you know, if you go from, if you view, we've gone from zero bad activity to 94% of the traffic is trying to compromise something or other. And this is just one data point. So who knows, but, uh, and, and there's no reaction to this. And I think this is where, again, uh, we've completely uh, you know, the country in some ways, the government has failed its fundamental job, which is to provide defense. Now, um, the other piece of my hobby horse here is when I taught at Stanford, I would tell my students there's a conflict between privacy and security. If you don't believe me, Try getting on an airplane where you tell the flight attendant, no, I'm not telling you who I am because that compromises my privacy. I'm anonymous and and so on. You get no place, right? So, you know, the fact you can, we allow people to be anonymous. We allow, you know, we prevent sort of violations of privacy is the first order bit on the internet has produced incredible problems. And, um, any attempt, I used, I made some attempts to try and, you know, throw out some ideas in the research context about improving the security of the internet, and a lot of it was focused on fighting back. That is, you say, you know, there's no reason on the planet that somebody should be sending me unsolicited packets. So if you imagine that I can trace back and cut them off from the internet in a way which was a, which was not. Uh, which was reasonable, you'd say we could stop this 94% of attack traffic. Now, there's no military on the planet that's ever survived with the notion that you're sitting there being attacked constantly and you don't counterattack. <laughs> so why have we ended up in this ridiculous situation? Because the privacy people win out over the security people.
as far as I can see. We've got our priorities wrong. Yeah, and I, I could, I completely agree on on that side because it it always is a compromise between your privacy and I, I would almost call it convenience, right? And everybody takes convenience on their counterpunch. This is exactly why it's always airports and bridges, and it's the same thing. Um, but unfortunately, I think from an enterprise side, the companies are now trying to defend themselves, but yeah, potentially not with the right people, maturity, understanding, uh, as potentially um, a government can coordinate and, and pull together. Well, but if you imagine you had a bunch of Russian mission mercenaries show up at a hospital and take the place hostage physically, yep. <laughs> and the government said, well, your problem, you should have your own paramilitary force in the hospital, we'd say this is insane, right? But that's what's going on. It's just not apparent because it's not in person, but it's the equivalent. There's definitely a new battlefront. We talked about it, Mike, uh, as yeah. well, right? We talked about 5G this week. There's an article, David, around 5G, and everybody talks about you know China being more advanced and ahead. Maybe that's not the battle. This article is even questioning whether 5G is, you know, is it going to, I wouldn't say uh, survive, I forget how the article phrased it, Mike, right? But basically, you know, we skip beyond that so we can kind of disarm them. But just this battle, to your point, David, it's, it's not traditional. Let me put on a camouflage, you know, suit. Let me get some guns, go out there and battle on this this front. It has shifted, and and I I feel like we were caught afoot a little bit. I think Intel trying to you know bring some of their chip manufacturing back here to the U.S. is wise. You're right on Taiwan Semiconductor. I mean, it is that the crown jewels right there, and it just it's just very interesting to me to to hear this perspective because you're right, but I don't know that we're moving quick enough to to uh, to protect us from, from some of this stuff. You know, and the other thing that we've spoken about, Zach, that I think we, we come back to is like the fragmented internet, right? If you think about China kind of locking down the great Chinese kind of firewall, is yeah. that where from a geopolitical sta uh, standpoint where we're all going to move to? And I mean, I, I can see it happening. Is it realistic? And it, it's starting to become more and more um visible that that's going to happen because India and Brazil and some other countries are starting to follow suit. Is, do you think that's wrong, David? Do you think that's something that will continue to happen? What are your thoughts there? Well, um, <clears throat> I don't think following suit with authoritarian <laughs> regimes is the right solution. <laughs> uh, you know, there's uh, uh, lessons from World War II, which I've cited the people uh, some great uh, DVDs out of, uh, I think it's uh, Hillsdale College on this, where, you know, Hitler took the same approach of, you know, I'm the guy who makes all the decisions and I don't tolerate dissent. And so his solution was he decided that you build the biggest tank and that's the solution. The U.S. And allies had tremendous amount of discussion and ideas thrown around about other solutions. And they came up with one of the parts of the solution was a Sherman tank that on some level looked like an idiotic solution. It's just that the uh, we could produce Sherman tanks at about 10 times the rate that or more that that 
Hitler could produce his Tiger tanks and the Sherman tanks could go across bridges that the Tiger tanks couldn't go off and that there were so few Tiger tanks that you rarely encountered one and that because there was so few, the Allies used anti-aircraft guns against the Tiger tanks where they could shoot them where before they even got within range of anything interesting. So, you know, to me, there's a real danger that, you know, you say, well, gee, an authoritarian regime can operate much more efficiently, can have a lot less mess than this, you know, free society that tolerates dissent. But history says that routinely they come up with stupid ideas and build stupid stuff and go off the rails. It's, uh, you know, we can harvest the collective intelligence of the smartest people. And, you know, the other thing that happens is people vote with their feet. You know, North America has benefited enormously, and even Britain from this, of smart people want to go where their ideas will be heard and, and will be considered. And so, you know, we're, uh, you know, the chaos people would say a strange attractor for smart people. And so I think we want to keep that. But... At the same time, uh, you know, to me, again, pardon my repeated analogies with World War II, I think that the direction China has gone under the Xi guy, it's clear to me that we're, we're in a 1939 type of situation where at some point you have to pick sides. You have to say, are you with the allies or are you with the Axis? And, and I don't know whether there's a, a neutrality game to be played here, but I think there is a question of picking sides, and clearly China is pushing in that direction to say, you know, be on our side. Well, I think the U.S. needs to be tougher to say if you're if you're not on our side, you're on their side. It's, <clears throat> that's what we had to do in World War II, and that's what every war involves. At some point, you have to say who's the friend and who's the foe. And I don't think it needs to be a military conflict, but, you know, to me, the modern form of, well, the way I like to put it is warfare has really been replaced by economic competition. And, you know, a key part of economic competition is what are your access to markets and what's your supply chain? And if we pull all of that to the Allies' side, the Axis people can have whatever they want and they can operate independently and see if they'll be the first authoritarian regime in the history of mankind that hasn't done something incredibly stupid. Yeah. And, and I think the supply chain and, and some markets are definitely um, starting to move their way back to the Western side of, of, of the world, but I think it's a, it's a long game, right? So that'll, that'll take time to play. Going back to, to something Zach said about 5G and, and the lead um, that other countries have been. And the, these articles we read here about, you know, how, how the U.S. is so behind in 5G. And, um, but, but there's been a lot of research lately about low-orbit um, satellites. And, um, you know, I, I guess, uh, you know, SpaceX is the biggest example, at least the m- most well-known with, with Starlink Internet. And um, is, is 5G or cellular as we know it, going to fade away to, um, you know, the internet from low orbit satellites is, is that the evolution or are we going to continue this, the, the current way we're, we're going and yeah, Zach, you're, you're also the network guy. So I know you're, uh, you're kind of hands deep in it, but I'm starting to, to kind of agree that the low orbit is, 
you know, these satellites are going to replace it. But I don't know if that's the full story, right? So yeah, I pass it to you two, the, the network uh, gurus here. Well, <clears throat> pardon me, but I used to tell this story to my, or the story, if you like, to my students at Stanford in my distributed system class where periodically some new technology would come up. And I'd say, you know, hardware people are like somebody shows up and says, listen, your breakfast cereal is going to be in a different package. And this is going to mean you'll change your diet and you'll live a different life and everything else. And I said, well, if it shows up in a different package, well, if it if it packs more cereal in, if it's easier to open and so on, then I'm not going to change my diet. I'm not going to change any piece of my life other than it's just be a little easier to have breakfast. And I think that 5G is in the same category. I think Space Link is going to be, you know, it's going to improve communication and so on. But will it fundamentally change things? I... I think it's more like, you know, thank you for better, cheaper, better packaging of my breakfast cereal. It's made my life incrementally better, but I'm not changing particularly anything I'm doing. I think the, the key transition that occurred and that really hit me because I bought a cell phone for a ridiculous amount of money. And I think it was in 19, I don't know, 86 or 87 or something or rather, <laughs> that the notion that yeah. you had mobile communication, that we're no longer calling a phone, you were calling a person, and that, you know, and, and using that together with a computer where you could be connected where you were as opposed to going to the computer where it was, to me, that was the revolution. That was the revolutionary step. Everything else is just better packaging of the breakfast cereal. And, you know, we've gone through these transitions where it used to be that the web was kind of limited because people were on dial-up. So, you know, fancy graphics and video didn't work too well. You know, now video is just not a big deal. So, you know, to me, you know, you reach these plateaus in technology. And maybe I'm just being short-sighted, but I just don't see it. It changing. It's just, you know, everything's getting a little better, cheaper, faster. That's fine, but it doesn't change things. It's evolution, not revolution. That's. Yeah, exactly. I mean, 5G, I think, has just taken on a life of, of its own that doesn't make any sense to me at all. The marketing people have taken over. I find dazzling. The dazzling is people talk about, well, the way to self driving cars is you have 5G. So what does this mean that my car is going to talk to some bozo on some place on the freeway and decide what to do? I mean, I'm surprised that this isn't, you know, this could be made into a horror film, I think. You know, more than <laughs> yeah, we, we can get there. We can get there. Yeah. Uh, I, wa- I wonder, and part of this, too, is, you know, I mean, there's no doubt five years ago, you know, the Chinese, but ZTE, Huawei, and, and these guys came out just they took the lead I and mean, they just dominated most of the uk had it deployed and i just wonder if part of this is um you know okay well you, you took the lead that's great but guess what man it's not really you know that, that, we're past that now so good for doing that right now we're going we're moving on to something else right um wi-fi six i don't know you know sixth generation low orbit satellites um i i i, I in a way i think a big part of this is is really pinning not to make it political this isn't political but just it's um you know, it, it changes the landscape a little bit for them. And I, I think there's something there maybe. Well, I think that, 
you know, conspiracy theories aren't popular these days, but, you know, you can imagine some conspiracy theorists saying that, well, the Chinese wanted to get their surveillance hardware deployed in a lot of places, and the way to do that was to to push to a next standard like 5G and then try and convince the world that the only way they can survive is moving to 5G and to being the low-cost leader in this technology. But, you know, I don't know whether anybody wants to subscribe to that particular conspiracy, but, you know, you look at all the pieces that line up there and the fact that this is a company that's straight out of the Red Army, you know, I think whether you believe it or not, I think in the name of abundance of caution, given you're talking about your nation's infrastructure here, that you think, well, maybe I should look at this pretty hard before I actually accept a communist country and company in becoming the communication infrastructure of my country. True, yeah. I would agree. David, we're, we're almost at the end of time. Anything, any other topics you want to, you want to bring up or, or share thoughts before we, we wrap up and close here? Well, um, you know, I think that this is, we, we definitely live in interesting times. I think that we're in this stage where there's a tremendous opportunity to, and, and almost necessity to automate systems far beyond what we've seen, you know, and, you know, uh, when you look at Uber and Lyft, the way they operate compared to the traditional taxi service, if you look at Airbnb, the way it operates compared to conventional rental system, and this sort of thinking, even if I can blow my own horn, the way that our Abstra technology automates the running of a data center. This is not completely eliminating the human being, but this is providing the automation that takes people, you know, raises the level of what people, the level people are involved, and also takes them out of the loop for the most, most part. And it provides dramatic savings. I mean, I. I'll tell people that we're not talking about a 20% saving. This is often something which is a million times more efficient than a human being, a million times more reliable than a human being, and can often do things when speed matters a million times faster than human beings. It's just that it has to be done right. So I feel like we're, we're being presented with this amazing opportunity to automate more and more and more. And I think we're at the early stages of this. It's just that this done right, because I remember as a graduate student, you know, the sign in the, the lab that I worked in that said, it's human to error, but it takes a computer to really screw things up. And all of these things, you know, all of the great promises is there. It's just all of the exposures. So I think we have a tremendous technological challenge ahead of us that is, it's just got to happen, but question of whether we do it right or not. That's certainly what intrigues me. Perfect. Thank you, David. Uh, really appreciate the time here uh, today. Um, we'll be back next week, everybody, um, with hopefully Dominic and Lilac return. Um, as always, reach out to us on LinkedIn, Roll for Enterprise, or on our Twitter handle, Roll Number Four Enterprise, and we'll see you all again next week. Thank you, everybody.